0: Hi there, it's Megan. Before we start this week's episode, I want to say a few words about the last episode of this podcast, which featured a conversation with journalist Rob Wypond, talking about his new book about involuntary psychiatric treatments, especially in inpatient settings, but also within the mental health arena more broadly. That episode got a lot of criticism, perhaps more than any episode of this podcast to date, which is really saying something. Much of that criticism was warranted. And while I do think Rob's book is worth reading, and while I did push back on several of his arguments, I want to acknowledge that I was not skeptical enough in the interview, and that's pretty unlike me, and as a result, caused a level of frustration that is not the norm for this podcast. That said, my approach is always to let guests speak for themselves, and in that spirit, I'm not going to address anything specific from that conversation, but rather refer you to the very long list of sourcing and endnotes from Rob's book, and uh, also for many, if not all of the points he made here, at his website, robwypond.com. There, you can access an actual PDF of his sourcing, and it could keep you busy for a while. Wanna be clear, this is neither an apology nor a retraction. I'm leaving the episode up uh, because I think it remains valuable in many ways. But to the extent that I was overly credulous, not to mention relying on hyperbolic language in the show title, I do apologize. Several of you have offered suggestions for guests who can offer a different perspective on issues around mental health, and I am working on getting those guests. For what it's worth, our next Zoom hangout for founding members will be Sunday, March 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I'm sure we will talk about all of this there. And now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Delm. My guest is Peter Moskis. He's a criminologist and sociologist who is also a former Baltimore City cop. And I'm gonna tell you more about him in a second. But just uh, real quick, I wanna mention something that I don't mention enough. I know I talk a lot about how you should join the community at Substack of paying subscribers and you should definitely do that. But another thing you can do is rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That is a really easy thing to do. It doesn't cost anything. It will take you probably a minute or so, if not less. You can just give it a five-star review. That takes like half a second. And that really, really helps. I don't always mention it, and I should mention it more often. So if you're all at All Inclined, please rate and review the show positively wherever you get your podcasts, and I would really appreciate it. Okay. My guest, Peter Moskis he is a a college professor, he teaches uh, graduate students, and he's also a former Baltimore City cop. He wrote a book about being a cop, and he is a fascinating person. Peter was one of the very first guests on this podcast back in the summer of 2020. That summer feels like ages ago, though, of course, the legacy of that time permeates just about every segment of public life these days. Peter is one of the most informed, insightful, and, sorry, nuanced speakers on issues of policing. And I invited him back to talk about what the last two and a half years have been like for him and what progress, if any, has been made when it comes to police conduct, media coverage of police, and most of all, public perceptions of police brutality and the number of Americans killed by cops every year. He stayed overtime for some not at all unserious, but very often fun conversation about how he feels about his life these days. What he does and does not miss about the 1980s and 90s, his relatively new hobby playing the auto harp, and most of all, a book he's been writing about the history of policing in New York City from the 1970s onward. So if you want to hear that part, become a paying subscriber at MeganDelm.substack.com. Otherwise, here is the main part of my conversation with Peter Moskus. Peter Moskus, welcome back to The Unspeakable.
1: Well, thanks for having me back.
0: It's been about two and a half years since we last talked. You came on in August of 2020, shortly after I started this podcast. I don't know if you remember that summer?
1: <laughs> I do. And I, uh, I, I don't remember. Maybe that was the first time I spoke sort of at length about yeah the summer of 2020 and George Floyd. I don't actually remember the details of what I said, but I do remember thinking, well, that was a, that was a good discussion, at
0: least. Oh, good.
1: And that's why I'm back.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you were like the fourth or fifth guest I had. I think you might even be like the third interview I recorded. That was not only the summer of everybody starting a podcast. It was the summer of George Floyd. Since then, you've been on a lot of podcasts. And I guess I just wanted to start by asking, what have the last few years been like for you? What do you find yourself talking about? Who wants you to talk? What has the response been? Tell us about it.
1: It's an interesting question. Who wants me to talk? I've noticed I'm no longer uh, very often invited to the progressive events, as I think they've.
0: <laughs> oh, that's written. why I haven't seen you there. I wouldn't know because I'm not invited either. So.
1: Yeah, and also though i I think I've become a little more selective in, like I'm just, you know, I did actually debate with a police abolitionist, uh, in twenty last year, the year before. It was one of my first trips after COVID hit. Um, so that, but in general, I'm just, I, I I don't know, I have no, I've lost my tolerance for the cab crowd and the abolitionists. And to some extent, I think that giving voices that are somewhere between absurd, you know, idealistic and dangerous um, is not a productive use of my time or anybody's time. Um, and that's why the past couple of years have been frustrating because those of us, and there's a Good, smart cadre of people who are actually interested in making policing better, um, but that professional crowd has really been—I don't know uh, if "defensive" is the right word—but you know, we've we've lost a lot of ground the past few years in terms of public safety, which is frustrating. If that's what you're, contr- if that's what your professional—you know, your professional life is sort of dedicated to improving.
0: Mm-hmm. I explained in the introduction a little bit about your background. You're a criminologist. You have a PhD in sociology. Is that your
1: yeah area? Both and you undergrad were undergrad and graduate.
0: Yeah, and and you were a Baltimore City cop for a while. When you say you don't get invited to progressive events anymore, did you in the past? Like, what was your relationship to this entire subject? Were you just were you like hanging out with other academics? Was that
1: your world? No, I I I've, I've never really no insult to academics listening. I've never really hung around too much with academics. Um I'm thinking of and maybe they're just not doing it anymore. And you know, I've been on Chris Hayes over the years many times and I'm sure I will be on again. So I but that type of I've been on less, let's say. There was a, I don't know if people know why it's an act, but he did a great oh, little yeah. series on uh criminal justice. I don't even remember when that is. I want to say like 2017 or something like
0: on the daily show no he he did his own own series okay
1: yeah and um he was a very good interviewer uh and he used that machine that um i I can't think of the name or the director that's famous for errol morris the
0: Interatron.
1: thank you yes he he had an Interatron, and so that was kind of fun to be interviewed with an Interatron. and you know what objectively it was it was an effective way to do it he invited me to and paid me actually to be part of a focus group that was uh sort of in for that show. And I said, looked around the room and said, you know, if I am the most conservative person in here, you have a diversity problem Um, because I am not very conservative and I know I have been a cop, you know, so I, I, but the idea that somehow I'm representing the right compared to everyone else here, I said that that's a real problem.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Now I admire the fact that sort of because of that, Honesty on my party said he wanted me actually in the show then. Um, So I respect his sort of intellectual integrity and and journalistic integrity in that. But I guess, you know, there are other former cops out there who are more willing to sort of preach the um, cops are always at fault, defund police party line. Hmm. And so it. Maybe it's just they realized that I wasn't quite what they wanted. But the Overton window of acceptable discussion has shifted far too much to the abolitionist side. I mean, it used to be quaint. You know, it's like having an right. old fashioned communist on your show. Exactly. Or a it, was anarchist. A boutique. it
0: was a boutique yeah.
1: belief. And on an intellectual level, I'm perfectly happy to, I mean, you know, discuss it. But at some point, we have to say, no, this is bad.
0: Well, and where were we with that kind of thing, the ACAB, that's all cops are bastards for anybody for whom that's not on the tip of their tongue, and abolish the police? Where was that rhetoric back in the summer of 2020? Was it already in play at all, or did it arise from that summer?
1: Oh, it was in play. I mean, I remember saying ACAP when I was in high school in the 80s. That was standing for pigs but i mean so the the phrase is nothing new um and i wasn't saying it to cops but you know it's just a cool thing for high schoolers to to (laughs) say you know you get tired of saying rock ons um (laughs) so it's not new but you know what's the sad part is and i would not want to live in a society where cops were universally loved and respected i mean that's i i there has to be a diversity of opinions, and and there has to be a little bit check on police power and government power in general. So, I would worry if it was if it was a sign of an authoritarian authoritarian state that no one could say they hated the cops. But what what's changed, I think, is the idea that it became people's identity, like on social media. I mean, and then like on Twitter, I just block those people preemptively. I'm not interested in that discourse with them, but especially, but I feel sorry for them. Like, really, this is how your social media is not just about policing, but that's, that's really up there. Like other people would, but their, their religion or their pronouns, right. or their sexual orientation. Category. Yeah. And your identity is that you hate cops. I mean, but
0: like, I just feel like that's just silly. It's just, it's fundamentally unserious. So I can't even take my, somebody seriously. Who's except special. my
1: city council representative here in New York city is an ab- is a police abolitionist. Okay. Um, And so that's, and I mean, that's sort of personal for me because she's my representative. This is in Queens, New York, but that's when it like, no, it's no longer a joke. We need adults in the room. And the fact that people I know voted for her because she's progressive, they need to stop that nonsense and vote for someone who is serious Um, and someone whose vision they share. That's the, that's also what I find interesting. I mean, I'm sure many people who voted for her do share her vision, don't get me wrong. But many don't. But it's simply that she was able to position herself as the most progressive in a field, almost entirely of progressives. Right. But that the harm to policing and therefore public safety and lives is 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 real. And you know, I'm maybe more attuned to that because of what I do for a living and because I work with the NYPD in various ways. But it's yeah, it's it's <laughs> you know, the shootings aren't happening generally in my neighborhood. And that's what makes it all the more sort of irksome.
0: Well, let's talk about New York City for a second. I'm living in Los Angeles right now, but I lived in New York for a long time, and it's my home in many ways. I'm certainly not the first to point out that the city is very different than it was three years ago. There's just a sense of unrest on the streets. There's homeless people seemingly everywhere. There are people walking around behaving erratically. There's a lot of petty crime. There's a lot of break-ins. There's a lot of, you know, crime on the subways, on the streets. Is that because the police, quote-unquote, can't do anything?
1: I like the show because there's nuance, but let me first uh, – in part, yes. I mean, that's a very unnuanced take, but I think that does need to be out there. I mean, it's not the entire reason. It's a combination of factors. I just made the – I made that once before. It's not the first time I made the analogy, but I recently – I'm trying to think if this is the piece that's out. No, it's um, pieces coming out with Vital City that I co-wrote with John Hall. There's also a piece from the Boston Globe that just this past week. I'm sorry, I'm just mentally trying to sort out the order here. But the analogy was about Jenga and um, the uh, that, that game about, you know, pulling sticks from mm-hmm. the tower. And I think we could have done like any one or two or three of the things that have happened in the past few years without any... Sp- super harmful negative consequences because you know for until new york city had this lowest number of murders in 2017 and 2018 mm-hmm. under 300 which is amazing for a city of eight and a half million people at least in american city other the rest of the world can handle that arrests were down incarceration was down violence was down and you know it was just up a little bit in 2019 and that maybe is when we could have said okay that's these reforms like let's be careful here Uh, But So there's a combination of factors and none of them directly was COVID, though COVID certainly matters. I mean, it was a huge pandemic that disproportionately affected New York City and Queens in particular. But it was a combination of state laws, a combination of city laws, and de-policing. And that part was related to COVID. But then, of course, uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis and New Yorkers, you know, and then there was civic unrest. In a lot of places, and that further led to depolicing, and this is you know quantifiable. Police enforcement just kind of dropped to zero. Um, also, a few thousand people were let out of out of the jails on Rikers Island. So, you know, it, it,
0: because of COVID,
1: yeah, because of COVID, but also before, but it was the population was already at a I don't know all time, which is mo- mo- many decade low before that, and again, that was planned. I mean, to give, I just happen to be staring at at this now. This isn't off the top of my head. But there were close to 20,000 people in jail in New York City in 1996. And that was down to seven, a little over 7,000 in 2019. So this is a huge reduction in local incarceration. The state prison population was down roughly, I don't know, 40% or so in that same time period. And then then we cut another 50%. So right now on Rikers Island, just 3% of people are held held there for misdemeanors. It's a very small group of mostly violent people arrested for violent felonies. If you're going to release 3,000 people from Rikers because of COVID, the question isn't if that causes an increase in crime. Of course it does. The question is how much, uh, because we know recidivism rates are high. So there's all this sort of constant, and it's frustrating because if you try to push back on some of the reform, and we don't, it's the real world. There have been between raise the age and bail reform and prisoner release and less policing and less enforcement, we know crime and violence has increased. And as soon as you try to pin it down, people are like, well, correlation doesn't equal causation. Or like, well, if you mention, yeah, if you mention one thing, you say, we can't pin it on that. And they're right. But as you know, we have passed in the past, let's say, I don't know, since Ferguson. So we're at what, seven, eight years now? We've passed, you know, ninety-nine different laws, bills, and reform acts, and not one of them has could be defined as get tough. And I, you know, it's a phrase I purposefully use, sort of, for its vagueness and, you know, law and order, right? Connotations. But basically, everything has been about how can we um, help the person who committed the crime? How can we help? And that could be directly, it could be indirectly, it could be about not having them commit further crime. But it's all been focused on the accused and on the criminal, everything, or on limiting policing. Now, I mean, again, at some point, we broke the system. Um, and, the, and the irony, as I mentioned earlier, is the system was actually working better than it had in my lifetime. Right. But that wasn't good enough because cops murdered a man in Minnesota. Like that, also, that cause and effect, well, therefore, the system is broken. No, but you can succeed in breaking it. Oh, yeah, and progressive prosecutors. is another part. Is that the entire reason? No, of course not. And I am ignoring, you know, things because I think there's so uh, they're warnings for the future, but they, I don't think they matter yet. But uh, the Supreme Court decisions on who can carry a gun is going to have an impact, though I don't think that's happened yet because New York has not yet gotten in line with the, the new constitutional rules. But those are more constant. You know, America's always had a lot of guns. America's always had poverty and racism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so the question is, what changed?
0: When you say who can carry a gun, you're talking about civilians. You're not talking about police departments. Okay,
1: okay. But New York, yeah, New York's gun regulatory policies were declared unconstitutional, and it's not clear what's going to replace it, but whatever replaces it is going to mean more guns in the city.
0: Really? People are going to, because that's, people are going to be walking around New York City with guns?
1: Like More so, yeah.
0: Concealed carry kind of thing? Regular people? It's not
1: quite... You know, it's... All we know really for sure is that what we had is no longer constitutional. So that hasn't been worked out. Also, the permitting process. Before, it was a, basically the the police commissioner had to sign off on every gun permit given to an individual in New York City, and um, the court ruled that uh, that should not be the power that one police commissioner has. So there has to be... You know, It's not that everyone can get a gun, but there's going to have to be reason to reject it as opposed to reason to approve it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I know you're not uh, an expert on homelessness, but I just want to run like this kind of scenario by you. Like if if you're a cop in New York City or any big city, but let's take New York because you're the most familiar with New York. And there is a homeless person being not overtly violent, but obstreperous, and maybe defecating on the sidewalk, uh, maybe harassing people, yelling things that could seem threatening, and neighbors call the police, a couple cops come. What are they allowed to do in that situation, and what are they not allowed to do?
1: They, they're not allowed to do... I hate to say something like it depends, but think of think of the situation. So, for cops to be able to do anything, you need some legal authority. Where well, you can you can ask politely, "Sir, could you please stop yelling and scaring people?"
0: Yeah, that works. You know,
1: sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it does work. Okay, but presumably it doesn't in this case, and the person has real issues. This, I think, has been forgotten in the past few years, and indirectly in the for- reform movement, people want to decriminalize a lot of small minor offenses. Somehow they've been duped into thinking our prisons are filled with people arrested for loitering and nickel bags of marijuana. Without those laws on the book and loitering and trespass, um, soliciting prostitution, uh, all those type of things, knife laws, those have all been pulled back. um, Cops lose their legal authority to say or else and what people forget is most policing is not about arresting someone. It is about policing as a verb. It's about changing behavior. Um, There's been a a proliferation of, um, of, of people shooting up drugs in public in New York City. I've seen less of it recently. Maybe that's winter. Maybe something's changed. But that was because New York State decriminalized shooting up in public, basically. It took away the police authority to enforce laws against the toolkit against, you know, needles and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, or at least that's how the NYPD interpreted it. At least that there's some, I, I know one smart person who says that shouldn't have happened, but anyway, it did happen. If cops can't arrest you or can't arrest you or write a ticket for something, they can't enforce it. Um, vending was taken out of the hands of the NYPD. Um, you know, these are conscious political choices that was done by the New York city council. Well then now there's more illegal vending and maybe that's fine is, you know, one answer to that, but let's not pretend that, you know, it didn't just happen. These are choices that are made. So if there's someone who is on the street in crisis, if they're not a threat to themselves or others, there isn't that much cops can do other than enforce minor laws. Uh, but if they can't enforce those minor laws and they may not want to, because they don't want to deal with that person because the person is, you know, physically dirty, um, you know, soiled themselves. They, uh, they may not want to deal with it because they know the prosecutor won't prosecute. And there's a strong disincentive to making pointless arrests where the second you bring them in, you have to release them because no charges are going to be filed. So prosecutors and their total immunity do have incredible um, power over the way police operate. Right. And then and, so, yes. but it's, but cops, if they have legal authority, at least they can, they can police on an informal level much better some of it is look you can't do that here you can do it somewhere else i don't think fewer people were shooting up heroin before they started doing it in public but somehow they stayed out of public sight and that's not a bad thing people mock that well you're just you're just sweeping the problem under the rug yeah Yeah, because if it's under the rug it's not really a problem for society as much that's sometimes forgotten about too um well you know yeah, if you don't want people begging or homeless people on the subway. Well, no, because at some point it's about commuters getting to work and commuters should have a uninterrupted ride, um, even though we haven't figured out how to solve all the housing issues and mental health issues in society. Um, that subway thing was Directly a, pol- a choice of de Blasio to stop enforcing the rules. Yeah. Um. And I remember when that happened because I knew a transit cop. And he's like, oh, no, we don't enforce the rules anymore. We were told to offer services.
0: Okay. What does that mean? Just That's just Would you, well, perfunctory. Y- just sounds like a gesture. Yeah, and and, and the gesture.
1: there was, was actually, you know, they collected data on this. And it was like 96% of people declined services. Almost by definition because New York is a right to shelter state. So, there are shelters. They're not right. all good. but. You know, oh well. Um, but so that they've already chosen not to be in shelters. Ninety-eight
0: percent. Wait, hang on a second. Just so we're clear, ninety-eight percent, and they would say offer help means we can would you, take you to a shelter, well, as
1: if they didn't know the shelters existed. That was the sort of premise. The five percent that accepted, anecdotally, for more out-of-state people, short-term people. But the problem on the subway is service-resistant, long-term you know, people with many different health issues, mental health, physical health, the whole nine yards. And um, and so they just let them be. And that along with, as a, I mean, I think these issues have to be disaggregated. There's the issue of how can we help people that need to be helped, and there's the issue of how can we run a subway system that millions of New Yorkers depend on that they can ride confidently, and yes, without hassle, or at least so much hassle. There's, you know, I say this almost coded, but I want to be clear because there's this loud contingent normally of guys uh, who sort of say, oh, you know, oh, you don't like the way someone smells like, oh, aren't you? Aren't you precious? And no, it's about it's about fear of people. It's about young writers, in particular, old writers, female writers, disabled writers because people who are preying on passengers pick easy targets. Um, It's it's not supposed to, you know, they're not looking for a fair fight. Um, But so, you know, yeah, a lot of sort of people arrogantly just sort of say that, I don't know, or too dismissive of people's legitimate fears.
0: Yeah. And one thing I always find ironic is there's so much talk about hate crimes or people yelling racial epithets at people on the street. Most of the time, maybe not all of the time, but most of the time, those are people having mental health crises. Those are people who are hallucinating or mentally ill. And this is just my little pet theory, but they've absorbed, there are, you know, Asian hate speech is in the air. It's in the ether in some way, and people have internalized it. And so if you are talking to yourself and shouting out obscenities, that will become part of it. So like, so we're making this, we're, we're apoplectic over people yelling hate speech on the street and yet we're not allowed to, that's actually, it's not a crime for these people to be doing that. It's, it's and a it's crime not, for them to doing the speech, but not <laughs> being on the street.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and when you put it together somehow, it's not a crime either. Then it's, 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 an, yeah, it doesn't, at some point the logic does break down, but so, I mean, no one should be the victim of that. And the other thing I would say is it's better on the street than on the subway, at least. I mean, the reason. Yeah. Free speech isn't protected on the subway like the street is because the New York Supreme Court ruled that it's a, you know, you can't get away so easily. It's a different environment on the subway. But, so on the street, you have to be a little more permissive of asocial behavior, let's just call it, and in its various forms. But then there's the other point where I do want to stress it is about us, the community. Uh, but how have we as a society sort of accepted that we just let people literally rot and die? in somehow the name of their dignity and freedom um, the mortality rate on the of people living in the subway is astonishingly high and 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 you know so european countries it varies of course by country but western european countries generally have about four times as many inpatient mental health beds as we do in america and evidently like that four times as many as we have is i think it's not my field so uh, but i think is a sort of generally accepted standard of of what you need as a rate per population. And I, I don't know what that rate is, but it's a lot more than we have. And it's because yeah, I know it's the legacy of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I guess, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. We need to help people for their sake. And sometimes, and that means against their will, because sometimes they're not in a position to exercise their will. And once they get stabilized, and that could take anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, you know, then they're free to make this judgment again. But this idea of just, I've traveled a lot in my life. I've lived in other cities and other countries. And it is bothersome that in urban America, we sort of you have to be trained to step over people and you're thinking, you know, are they dead?
0: Yeah, I know. No, it's it's barbaric. I mean, you get it's used barbaric. to it. It's barbaric. And you, you have to go bring work.
1: I can't stop for And the props are right. probably not dead. Oh, you know, they're no, just not dead.
0: Probably not. But and they don't this, want me to help. Is this something that we see in? cities with liberal administrations? I mean, in blue cities, do we see, I mean, we always hear about homelessness in the in San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and LA, but are we seeing the same kind of thing in Dallas and Memphis? I mean,
1: I don't oh, know, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I would say this, the cities that have spent a lot of money on these issues, like san francisco portland seattle they need to see some results at some point you have to say and this a lot of this is about harm reduction policies yeah Um, and i'm not opposed to harm reduction but we don't do it right harm reduction in and i know the netherlands well because of the time i've spent there and research i've done with the police uh but yes there's a lot of carrot involved in getting people into services but at some point you're not allowed to shoot up in the middle of the street, and you're not allowed to be a repeat problem for your neighbors. And if you are, the coercive state will kick in, and it does so gradually and I think more humanely than we would do it here in America. But there are rules. There are rules on the street. There are rules in the shelter, and these things are policed. And so we we took the permissiveness of harm reduction in and you know in Portugal and the Netherlands are the two countries that have probably taken it the furthest. And we haven't enforced any of the common standards of public behavior and decency that they, that they definitely see as part of their solutions. So there's an ideology about this. And I don't want to get too cynical, but then once you start to get people who are making money off the problem, um, there can be, say, not enough incentive to find people housing if you're paid to uh, per bed per night to provide shelter. Um, and that's in addition to like dishonest corruption, you know, just there's, there's also poor incentives, but there is sort of a homeless industrial complex right now. Um, and I, I'm not saying that they're all powerful, but there's a, there's a, there's a lot of money being spent. If you take a little bit from police funding, uh, you know, that's not going to make the difference.
0: Well, when you say being paid per bed, what do you mean? Who's paying Who?
1: The city pays these nonprofit service providers, and I put nonprofit in little scare quotes because their people running it make a lot of money. Um, They in turn give small campaign donations to politicians to get these contracts. They get paid for how many people they provide services to. So if they empty a bed, they I mean, unless they could refill that bed, but they don't. I don't want to say they don't want to, because some of them do. Uh, but they're, the incentive for those organizations is not to actually solve the mm-hmm. problem. If the problem is defined as finding people more permanent housing with, you know, wraparound services and all the all those sort of concepts and catchphrases,
0: right? Well, I had a guest just recently, Rob Wypond, who wrote a book called "Your Consent Is Not Required," and it's about people getting trapped in the mental health care system, like people who are having a crisis and they end up in a psychiatric facility and suddenly they lose all control over their care. They can't leave. They're being given powerful psychiatric drugs. And he was talking mostly about this, not mostly, but he was talking a lot about this happening just in the general population, like a normal person who would call a suicide hotline. And then suddenly the paramedics are showing up and he's being dragged away. And, you know, I kept I kept kind of pushing back about the homeless thing because I think many, many people would be concerned about what what he's describing. But at the same time, we're walking around in these cities where we're not allowed to insist that people get off the streets and into some kind of mental health facility. So.
1: Or at least not just be in the most prominent places like, you know, the entrance to Penn Station or taking over public parks. Yeah. Some of it, and this gets in sort of broken windows theory, is about um. if your public space needs to be shared, so if you monopolize the space, whether it's through scary behavior, loud behavior, violent behavior, or, you know, setting up a homeless encampment, um, you know, then then it's not shared space anymore. That's a place where a certain line has to be drawn, that public space is for the public. Um, so, yes, again, you know, I'm setting my sights low. I don't know how to solve all these problems. But some, I can say, yeah, you can't do that here. Now, it's interesting, interesting what your guest is saying, because I don't, you know, I, I haven't heard the conversation, but I am, in essence, arguing the opposite of that, that we don't do that enough. Yeah. And I I don't see, I so mean, also that- that's... <laughs>
0: But, yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, I had to, he forced me to think about it differently, that's for sure. Well,
1: I mean, look, it's taking away someone's freedom, whether it's through, I would say, well, whether it's through criminal prosecution or mental health issues, it's a big deal. I would actually say the criminal one is a little more clear cut uh, because it's less subjective. But I mean, I from my policing days 23 years ago, you know, I, I committed people. It was a pretty high standard. It wasn't because I didn't like you or it wasn't even because your life is in disorder. It was because I was afraid you were going to hurt yourself or someone else, you know, in, immediately. I don't now what happens to that person after they went to, you know, Hopkins hospital in my case, or Bellevue in New York. Like, I don't know. Um, because you know, HIPAA laws and whatever. Uh, I, I, but yeah, the idea that the big problem now is people disappearing into that system and not being able to get out—I'm very skeptical of that, just based on the people I see get out. Um, you know, still in their hospital scrubs with no yeah. places to go, and I mean,
0: uh, it, it might have to do with one's insurance.
1: Yeah, but so that you know, the the solving these problems is never as sexy as saying we have to reimagine and reaffirm. and but yeah, these I, I, the incentive for hospitals. And I say these things, I mean, just can we like do a group caveat? Of course, I don't mean every hospital and every doctor, but they have. they're Hashtag under,
0: not all hospitals.
1: Yeah, not all hospitals, not all doctors. But I think there's too great an incentive to get people out because they cost the hospitals money. So it is one of the strange ways where we simply could solve this with money. Um, we could pay hospitals a whatever it actually cost. I'm sure it would be a lot more, but um, you know, we could pay them what they need to so they're not incentivized to kick people out. Of course, you want to make sure the flip side doesn't become true either, but you know, as if they had good insurance. Yeah. So, you know, like you get committed first for, you know, twenty-four hours or three days, and then they can get bumped up to like two weeks or a month. So I don't know, maybe for half of that time you want to get out and you can't, but um, I mean. That two doctors have said sorry, we don't trust you out there yet.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, let's let's shift to police brutality for a little bit here. How are we doing since the last time you and I spoke? Obviously, we just had the case of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. That was a horrific case, just from the looks of things. But I don't know how much you want to talk about that case, but just in general. What do we know about incidents of police shootings, killings, use of force, all that stuff? Well,
1: you know, I did, I wouldn't be surprised if you listened to the Glenn show. I was talking to Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, um, and that came out like a week ago, about the Tyree Nichols case. And some of it hasn't changed at all. There are some unique factors to that killing that make it, you know, know, I mean, for instance, that almost everyone involved was black, that there wasn't any, there didn't seem to be any extenuating circumstance. And I say that not to justify it, but sort of to go, oh, well, that's, oh, well, the guy, you know, slugged the cop. And so no wonder he was pissed off. Now we-
0: Yeah, there's no backstory so far.
1: Well, part is hearing, curious. Right? We don't know. So they haven't really, we still don't know why the car was stopped and why we don't know that. I don't know. Um, I would like to know why the car was stopped. I would like to know, um, confirm or deny rumors of any knowledge of one of the cops and uh, two nickels. But the fact that the videos of the car stop haven't been released is curious. I imagine they will make the po- police look worse, but I don't know. We only see it at the point where he's being dragged out of the car. Nichols, uh he wasn't used to this you know he doesn't seem like someone who had a lot of dealings with cops and i mentioned that because at one point the cops say like get on the ground and he looks back and he's like but i am on the ground and it's because as a former cop i know what the cops meant which is when they say get on the ground they mean you know spread eagle on your belly face down but he didn't know that and why should he know that (laughs) And then there was the police incompetence, which is three cops pulled them out of the car brutally, but the real beating hadn't started yet. And the cops managed to mace each other and Nichols ran away because, you know, fear for his life. But had the cops, it's a, so they're brutal and incompetent. Had they just been brutal, Nichols would still be alive, I think. Um, because, the um, so that happened after the fact. Not after, I mean, after the, the initial incident and running away is then when they really, got his ass kicked and killed. The cops were immediately fired, you know, charged. Uh, so that perhaps marks a change. You saw that a bit with George Floyd, but even that took a bit longer. So that I think was, so that might've helped matters. Um, the fact that it wasn't white cops beating a black guy, I think made uh, some people less interested in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you could say it's all white supremacy. Oh, but they at some they had internalized point people go, Come racism. On. Yeah. Yeah. That's ultimately that argument's not going to win a majority uh vote. But I do think there's a still a cover-up going on in the police department. The there is a systemic problem. Um and it's funny because I would think that sort of the anti-policing crowd would jump on this a bit more. Um the systemic problem is not white supremacy if the systemic problem or white supremacy, well, how, yeah, I don't know how we're we going to fix that. You're going to ask a white supremacist system to reform itself. It, it's, a, it's almost a fool's errand if that were true. But the systemic problem is in the Memphis Police Department and other police departments we don't know about at this moment. No sergeant shows up at the scene. I mean, the leadership is not there. And that's why this unit was allowed to go haywire. Look, I can't be certain, but it sure doesn't look like the first time they beat someone up. They seem pretty familiar with the routine. Where is the supervision? Now Again, this is sort of the less sexy part of policing. People don't generally want to hear, where is the sergeant? They want to hear, all cops are bastards, right? Well, it does appear that these cops were hired with lower standards now. We didn't know that at first. We seem, at least for some of them, should not have been hired, should not have passed a background check. That is a problem that's only going to get worse because police are not recruiting well. Um, And that's the piece I wrote. Actually, it's behind a paywall, but that's with Brandon Del Pozo. I co-wrote it with him for the Boston Globe. So that, yeah, the lack of supervision, because these are, you know, one of the responses, but I'm just trying to think of the things that went wrong, which is not to, you know, take focus off the officers who committed the crimes. I mean, it's a criminal act, but someone who's seen a lot of these videos, uh, you know, these are the things I'm looking at is, you know, why couldn't the cops get him under control at first? Where was the supervision? Why did it take so long for, uh, the paramedic in the ambulance, uh, to show up? It's like a half hour later when the ambulance finally rolls in and I still don't see supervision. So that, that is the part I'm, um, at some point the police chief herself needs to take responsibility. This is her department. And so I, I don't want just those cops at the scene, though they should be charged and convicted it's not just on them there's there's a greater failure organizational failure here as well and that's that's more useful in terms of reform and how you prevent this in the future because i mean something like look all we can do is reduce the frequency of this and i know people generally don't like to hear that they but there are six seven hundred thousand cops in america and a lot of them are young men you know imagine a city of Six hundred thousand men and saying, okay, you know, and okay, there's going to be no crime here. Some of them will be criminals. Some of them will be stupid. Some of them will make bad choices. Some of them will make good choices and have things go wrong. But like, this will happen again. And so, may you know, maybe this is in some ways the response to it might be a model, which is cops were you know there there was some accountability initially on on the police end. Maybe that's that's a promising sign. I don't know.
0: Were these relatively rookie cops? What do we know about their experience level?
1: Um, Some, I I don't know for all of them, but some of them were hired like in 2019 and they should, uh, and later, and they should not have been in this unit. Can't have a unit like that um, that's focused on guns and violence and without good supervision.
0: We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. And join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word, means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. Ahead of this conversation, I called up a cousin of mine who is a police officer in a medium-sized town, small city slash large-ish town in the Midwest. And I just wanted to talk with him about what his experience was like there he's a relatively young guy he graduated from police academy in 2010 and he said that at the time he was like applying to be a police officer it was really hard there was a lot of competition it was hard to get a job part of it was nepotism he explained uh but it was tough and today they can't they can't find anybody like they're he said they're pulling people out of prison for a second. I thought he meant they were pulling prisoners out of prison and <laughs> recruiting them to be cops, but he meant like, you know, corrections COs. officers. Yeah. yeah. And it was really sounding like it's a job that nobody wants to do anymore for a variety of reasons. And I'm curious your thoughts it's, about that. It's
1: a real problem. Um, and it's not a problem everywhere. There's a lot of poaching going on now where cops Spokane, Washington has, you know, been recruiting from, uh, from Seattle. Um, so that's going to be Seattle's lost and Spokane's gain. Some places are still, I mean, so there it's, 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 it's just kind of a confluence of stuff. Um, there is there, the anti-police narrative since that has grown since Ferguson and grown unchecked among a certain segment. Of the population, why would you want to join an organization that's evil? This idea that police are bad—that the a-historical idea that that police descend from slave catchers—it in the South, there's it's still complicated, but in the South, there's some truth to that, of course, but not in the North. The term police violence has gotten some traction recently as a synonym for use of force. And partly mm. I roll my eyes and go, it's that group again. They hate policing, but it matters because if we let all you police use, I mean, it's an abolitionist dictionary they're pulling from that all police use of force is violence. No, so sometimes, and I, you know, this, I think before used to go unsaid, and now I think it has to be said, but, you know, the goal of policing is in violence, but ultimately that is why we have, Cops is to use force, and if you want to call all use of force violence, fine. I'll even adopt that term, even though I think it's wrong uh, because violence has a negative connotation. Um, sometimes we pay cops to shoot people, mm-hmm. um, and that's not most of the job, and it's not most of the time, you know, most of anything. But we can't forget that. And if if there is no, if we don't want cops to ever use force, then we don't need policing. They are somewhat defined by the potential to use force. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to call the cops. But this so yeah, the idea that we want to, that all police involved shootings are representative of police violence. Um,
0: Yeah. Where are we now with statistics about police killings? Either, let's say, let's, okay, let's take uh, shootings of unarmed black men. So when you and I Last spoke, it was summer twenty twenty. I remember having conversations with people kind of normies who don't listen to a million podcasts the way we do. and uh, I, I you would say, well, how many how many unarmed black men do you think are killed by police every year? And somebody said to me, oh, "I don't know, a thousand
1: and it was what, like nine or twelve or something that year
0: I yeah, I don't know. So like, but it's also confusing too, because shooting is not the same as somebody in a in a chokehold. George Floyd was not shot. And also I'm noticing there are cases, like there were just a few weeks ago, there were cases in Los Angeles. And one of them, strangely enough, was the cousin of Patrice Cullors, who was one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. He was- Yeah, um, perhaps
1: if he hadn't heard for years that cops are out to get him, um, he would not have been so scared to see the cops who were trying to help him.
0: Yeah. And he appeared to be having a mental health crisis. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But that's so that Benny here. On, but that case is interesting because I watched those videos and, and um I think police handled it well. Um, that's what I mean, like at some point you have to. Yes, they use force against him. They were trying to get him to the hospital, um, and he did die three hours later. But that's that's the, yeah that's the police to not murder that man
0: right and this is the thing I want to ask about counting though so in that case and I think the at least one other one here in LA recently it was a stun gun so are we seeing more of this the cops are hitting people with stun gun and then they're going into cardiac arrest like I guess so my question is first how do we count these things and really what are what kind of numbers are we talking about when we are talking about the the police killing unarmed people let's just say regardless of race like how big of a crisis how often does it really happen because people have wildly inflated ideas
1: yeah i'm you know we we do have decent numbers on this now at least since 2014 the best source was fatal encounters but unfortunately that guy stopped counting after 2021 which is his right but like why the federal government isn't doing this is, is crazy to me. So we still have the Washington Post and we've got a couple other sources. And, you know, statistically, if they're one or two off, that doesn't, I mean, they're, you know, they're real people. But, you know, on a statistical level now, it's, the numbers are relatively good. Washington Post just looks at uh, shot and killed. It's a little over a thousand a year. Three percent of those are unarmed. There's some undetermined, so the real figure might be slightly higher, but probably not much higher. So we're talking, you know, 30 to 40 people, unarmed people, shot and killed by cops. If you add people killed in other ways, the number overall uh, of deaths will go up 10 to 15 percent. Okay. Okay. The reason – and so, again – individually it may matter i like the shot and killed part because it takes some of the subjectivity out of it there is a point and people don't sometimes people just die and um especially if you're out of shape and in a struggle with police and high on drugs and of other issues so the idea that you're dealing with cops in a physical battle and then die is a little different than cops killing you and i don't know if we can ever absolutely make the call on what you know which which side is it on and that's so but if you, so, I mean, I, it's funny, just yesterday, I was going through some of the Washington Post list of unarmed, um, I tweeted about this, of unarmed people killed by cops. Because, interesting, first of all, there are a lot of white faces on the list. I think majority even matters, I think, if you want to say everything's just about race. But like, one of them, and it's perhaps the most tragic, is that cops killed a two-year-old girl. And you go, well, she was unarmed, she was no threat. But the circumstance was that her father Police came because of a domestic dispute. A woman, I presume the baby's mother, but I don't know that, ran out of the house and was promptly murdered by the man in front of the cops, um, shot multiple times. And then the guy fired 90 rounds at the cops who returned fire and the girl got killed. Now, it's a tragedy because a two-year-old girl got killed, but it, like, yeah. at some point you go, well, that's that sucks, but... What are you, but what, you're saying that the cops were at fault here because they killed an unarmed girl. Yeah. You know, uh, so a lot of these unarmed cases are clearly, um, justified shootings. Uh, some of them are ambiguous, you know, so you don't know. And some of those may be bad. Uh, but unarmed is not a great standard for threat when so many of these un- unarmed cases involve, you know, someone shooting at cops, but maybe the person who gets killed, uh, isn't the shooter could be the, sh- you know, shooter's accomplice or whatever. They used to have a category called threat. Uh they took that away, I think, and I suspect it was because it didn't fit their narrative that cops were shooting a bunch of people for no reason. Or maybe they just didn't want to make the subjective call. You really do have to look at them each case individually and people don't want to do that. And there are judgment calls involved. So that's why that gets messy. But the vast majority are, you know, we are in a violent country and people have guns and they're using them. And they're shooting at other people and shooting at cops. There's a fair, some, uh, you know, suicide by cops. A lot of those come out as unarmed, but the guy is pretending he's armed.
0: Wait, what does that mean exactly?
1: Uh, Someone basically gets cops to shoot them because they want to commit suicide and aren't willing to do it themselves. I mean, it's common enough that there's a term for it.
0: Are they trying to, like, have their family get a settlement kind of thing?
1: I don't think so. I think they're just very disturbed. Wow, you know someone who will be pointing a, repl- a replica gun at cops until they get shot—kind of situation. I mean,
0: do you think that people are more afraid of cops than they used to be because of all this of the public conversation around this? One of the things my cousin said when I spoke with him—you know, he lives—it's he's in the Midwest. It's mostly white people, but he said that if he, you know, when they have a, an encounter with a, a black, usually a black person, not always Hispanic, but he says that he, they see this like incredible fear that results in overreaction on the part of the person who's being apprehended, and he and his fellow officers chalk this up to paranoia uh, stoked by the media.
1: You know, might be for some people. There is a flip side, which is I think a, there are a fair number of people and who have less fear of cops because they know that, you know, they're not going to go to jail. Yeah.
0: Well, he said that as well. That was another scenario. Yeah. They can just, it's an opportunity. Yeah. It's not an arrest. It's an opportunity.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's, uh, so I I, I think you could get both of those simultaneously. I do, if we don't mind going back, I I do want to add something about people killed by cops because there's the short term. So we know the number is roughly a thousand to 1,100 shot and killed, 10 or 15 percent more die in contact with police, um, whether it's having a heart attack or you know, being beat to death, like in the Nichols case. Because there was a recent Guardian headline that said that police violence is you know, higher than it's ever been, And that's so manifestly untrue. It does seem a little bit higher than it was in 2015, but then, you know, murders went up 30% in 2020, and cops are more likely to shoot people when people are shooting each other more. There are two trends that have happened. One is that as violence goes up, uh, you see police have to use violence more against people. But over decades, the number of people shot by cops has plummeted dramatically, and I this is well it's old research cuz i i just found it like i didn't do the research but there are it's hard to get these numbers from earlier decades cuz most police departments weren't even counting
0: mm-hmm. right
1: but new york city when they did start counting um and this was i mean I mean, there's a fascinating history about that era, of course, of policing. We're talking, you know, 1970, um, post Serpico, Patrick V. Murphy, the reformer commissioner, hated by cops, is in charge. And but cops, I'm looking this up. In 1971, cops in New York uh, shot 314 people.
0: 1971. Okay. Yeah. And that was the that was New York. Was that like the real 70s New York, or were we still hanging on from the golden 60s? Was New York a pit by that was 71? well. the
1: data only goes back to 1970 okay. and it probably increased a lot in those years because crime was going way up in the late 60s um, but it is interesting we don't know i mean i worked with a cop who came on the job in 1968 and he's this is baltimore but he said man i shot at a lot of people i never hit anybody but he said the best part was there was no paperwork you just bought yeah. more ammo this was you know stop or i'll shoot era of, of policing
0: yeah
1: um so they killed so 71 is the peak year. And you know, remember, cops were being assassinated then too. So there was a lot going on back then. Cops killed ninety-three people in New York that year, um, and so that last in twenty twenty-one, uh, cops killed six people and shot twenty-one people. So I mean, this is to go from three, you know to, to go from three hundred and and fourteen sh- police-involved shootings and ninety-three fatalities down to twenty-one and six. Now. I was able to finally get some accurate data for a few other cities, I think 18 in all. And you see this reduct, not in every city, but in almost every city. Overall shootings were down nationally, about 70% from this era. And it's this isn't to say, like, in a way, well, there's an important lesson here, which is if we forget that things used to be a lot worse and cops used to shoot a lot more people. This is before Tennessee versus Garner, which is the Supreme Court saying, You can't shoot people just for running away. New York City adopted those policies far earlier on that, you know, and then you had better training, and so I mean, there there are lots of things that led to this massive reduction. But if we forget that this massive reduction happened, we forget the way that you actually improve policing, which is by identifying problems and working with police departments to make them better. My fear is that the reform movement today hashtag not all reformers, uh, but the reform movement today is dominated by people who don't want to make policing better because the loudest voices in the room think all cops are bastards and want to abolish policing. That needs to be sort of called out and pushed back against because if your goal is not better policing, you should not have a seat at the reform table.
0: Well, and what are they proposing? Like violence interruption initiatives? Like what is the practical solution in their eyes.
1: Well, you try and pin them down on that. Oh, we don't mean it immediately. It's a goal. Okay, so how do we get this? Well, but do they mean like
0: training people? I mean, there are programs like, I, I mean, I'm, maybe you can explain briefly, like Baltimore Safe Streets or there's Roca in Massachusetts. Yeah, how's that working out? I, you tell me.
1: Well, again, I mean, it depends, again, on the individual group and the organization and the management, but Baltimore is more violent than it's ever been. So at some level, it's not working. Also, I mean, poor Baltimore. Uh, I I miss and love that city, but you know I, the how many the street workers of some of them have been uh, you know, arrested, murdered. It's these aren't substitutes for policing. That's the problem. Remember Chaz and Chop? People have forgotten about that awfully quickly. That was gonna be the summer of love in Seattle, right? Oh yeah. It lasted one month before you know, before an, an armed black kid got murdered. So they sort of, I mean, we tried it there, right? Oh, we didn't try it right. We're still going to that utopia. I am not against social spending, social programs, and trying things, even if they don't work. But the abolitionists don't say, let's wait till we fix everything before getting rid of police. They're trying to get rid of policing. And they're succeeding in many places. And that's, you know, they, they get you bit by bit. They're chipping away. And I think, yeah, that has to be recognized. Okay, but well, tell me what your ultimate vision is. Uh, you know, and then, then then we'll talk about the specific thing. Because <laughs> the specific thing might be okay. But let's be clear about it.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you forever. But while I have you here, I want to take advantage of this. Because I really want to ask you this question. Okay. So, I when I'm in New York, I live in Washington Heights. We have these biker gangs, street bike gang, ATV. I'm sure you're familiar with these guys. They there's like hundreds of them and they ride en masse and they you know, fly down the streets and they have no mufflers and it sounds like gunshots and they're pulling wheelies and doing loops and they're going up on the sidewalk. And it is spectacularly dangerous. And the cops cannot do anything about it, apparently. Why?
1: They could. Because the political powers that be do not want to face the consequences of one of them dying But they're uh, killing other people. And yeah, they, they, but there are no pulling- political consequences for that. It's, those are political choices. Ugh. But Baltimore um, has been dealing with that for decades, or not dealing with that for decades. It is not inevitable. It could be policed. But you need the political support. You can't ask cops to do that because someone will get hurt. Someone will die um, in that. But in the long run, yeah, it would save lives because you'd stop it. You'd make it not fun. People it's not something that people have to do. Um
0: they do things like confiscate the street bikes and then put it on Instagram that they've like taken a bunch of them and crushed them and look at this Instagram post about it.
1: Yeah, it's some but yeah. Um and you know that that'll be part of it. At some point, and I, I mean that quite seriously, you have to make it not fun. I mean, that's that's a now, how you make it not fun is the tough part. That's where the devil's in the details. Some of it is destroying bikes, and that's a sort of in effect a monetary fine, right? Um, some of it might be trying to stop traffic and corral people in, but are you willing to, you know, the, well, those motorbikes are they're you're not going to catch them in a the car. Um, you know, they're, they're generally good riders and can get away, but at some point, you have to just say, you have to be relentless. Follow them with helicopters. Get them before the fact, after the fact. Infiltrate them. It can be police, but there has to be the political will. Thank you. Know I don't see that so much in my neighborhood in Queens, and I'm happy because I had to deal with that in Baltimore.
0: Apparently, it has to do with the layout of the streets. I guess they're like really wide up there and they're straight, and so there's something mm. about Amsterdam Avenue. Apparently, yeah, they go flying down Broadway. They start up an Inwood. Or maybe one ninety high one nineties, and there's just something about the layout of the neighborhoods apparently that makes it attractive up there.
1: But people have to complain. The city council people have to care, and the mayor has to care, and then then the police department will uh, will work on it. But there is at all levels, say, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's funny because it's such a different problem than say someone in need of. Mental health treatment on the subway, but it really does go down. To, they're both it comes to political leadership and saying we're either going to tolerate this or not.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a huge quality of life issue. I mean it's just nobody likes it. Like everybody hates them. They're universally despised, and yet there's nothing to be done. Well, all right. Well, I don't, I'll, I'm I'm going to let you go in, in a second. But I guess I just want to ask you this one last question: What could be done to get? Good people into policing, how do you make the job more attractive? How do you get like quality quality people applying for this job and doing it and staying there?
1: Some of it is pay, but that depends on the department because some departments pay quite well, others don't you know a lot of some of the problems in policing are the same things you see in other government services, just that poor cities have worse quality because they have a lower tax base um, so that could be. Solved at a state or federal level with some incentives, New York, a city I care most about because it is my home, is in a better position than most places, though still losing numbers are going down because of New York City's migrant base for many immigrants I mean so the stereotypical Patrick Murphy Irish cop of past generations is now being replaced with a Dominican cop, and I mean these are the students at my college, at John Jay College, are are almost entirely immigrants or children of immigrants. They, in a way, are quality Like their kids will probably go to fancier private schools and, you know, become doctors and lawyers. Uh, but for a lot of immigrants, policing and any government job it is still seen as a way to break into Uh, a relatively well-paying American working class with benefits and a pension and health insurance, things nobody in their family has ever had. Uh, So New York will have less of a problem, I think, recruiting. In the rest of America, I I don't know. The problem will get better. I mean, will get worse (laughs) before it gets better. I don't know how it's going to get better in the short term. And I always find it interesting when I do talk to people and get interviewed, I always expect some enlightening, optimistic statement at, at the end.
0: Oh, not um, here. I don't. Yeah.
1: Please. And that's, I think, why I don't like talking to do ruin my brand. Um, no, things are going to get worse. I mean, that's just, yeah, <laughs> we have to mitigate that and plan long-term. I mean, I wonder, you know, it's, and it would be so criticized by the anti-policing progressive crowd. I mean, they already have the term anything that, you know, copaganda. As if that's necessarily bad. Oh. I mean, I'm trying to think, because policing is local, and these problems have to be solved locally, and that makes it tougher. But things that the, you know, Joe Biden does not hate cops. The vice president, I'm not so certain about, but Joe Biden could do stuff. Well, she
0: used to love them.
1: (laughs) And what happened?
0: She used to be one herself.
1: Sort of. What happened? I don't know. Practically. You know, officer-friendly stuff. I mean, pure PR Copaganda I'm talking about, but maybe that is good to to sort of counter some of those balances. It's not just that cops are great. You know, I can see an educational thing, which is what, if you need help, go to somebody in uniform because they're going to help you. That idea could have long, you know, it would take a while though, but still to sort of move the narrative back to a slightly more commonsensical middle ground would be good. Keep in mind that for all we're talking about, the public by and large, and maybe it's not our The public we see is still incredibly supportive of policing. Yeah. It's still consistently, and it you know went down.
0: Not just white people, by the way, we should say, not by a mile.
1: Uh, I will say white people tend to be more pro-cop, but black people want more policing more than white people want more policing. Mm. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants either the same or more policing, the vast majority. The idea that you can want more policing and better policing – is actually not that nuanced or complicated. Um, so that you see that much more among black communities. But this is consistent, reliable. This is like Pew and Gallup polls. And it's constant over decades. There is, there is, you know, there are blips, pretty large blips when there is a huge event, be it like George Floyd. But this idea that people don't want policing is just, it's a myth, but they're winning democratic primaries on this idea. And maybe they control certain you know, cities that aren't representative very well. But so it's so I I was sort of ask I don't know what I'm actually asking here. It's like, well, we need to prove public perception, but public perception actually isn't as bad as people think it is. And so I don't know I don't know what to make of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well we'll think about that.
1: When they ask about trusted institutions, you know, policing are third after the military and um small business owners. Oh. So that's above any other group you can Small
0: business owners are the most trusted institution in America.
1: I think I didn't realize that was an
0: institution.
1: I know. Well, they've been asking that question for a long time. So (laughs) it's good they keep it constant. But people like their local store owner or something, you know. Oh. The mom and pop store. Now, do you trust them? I don't know.
0: Wow. Okay. You wouldn't know. All right. Yeah. And And then the military and then the police.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so any other group. I mean, we're talking about media politicians church teachers they're all lower than that again what what we why that matters I don't know but it's worth mentioning
0: yeah yeah well peter thank you so much for coming back I know you're busy and you're really the best person uh, who talks about this stuff so I appreciate you being willing to have these long discussions and
1: well I just appreciate that you're willing to have these long discussions giving us the that's... time
0: rather than going on you know Rachel Maddow all the time and
1: yeah, that's when I thanks haven't for been being invited to recently either.
0: <laughs> well, Peter, thanks for coming on. I always love talking with you.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's, a, it's been a good, a good discussion.
0: That was my conversation with criminologist, sociologist, and former Baltimore City cop, Peter Moskus. You can find out more about him at com. That's P-E-T-E-R-M-O-S-K-O-S. If you want to listen to the bonus portion of that conversation, where Peter talks about all sorts of things, the book that he's writing, the fact that he plays the auto harp, how he feels about the music. Of the past and the music of the present, uh, and also just a lot of uh, you know continuation of our conversation about policing. Go to this podcast Substack, which is my Substack MeganDowm.substack.com. Become a paying subscriber for as little as seven dollars a month, and you get this bonus content just about every week. And it's great. It's not just filler. It's really excellent. So I highly recommend it. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.